Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. We hope the Ringer can provide you entertainment and companionship during this time. So as always, feel free to check out theringer.com, where we're still covering the latest in sports, pop culture, tech, and media. And the Ringer's YouTube channel can provide endless amounts of entertainment. You can find that at youtube.com slash theringer. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of The Watch. Hope everybody is staying safe out there. On today's episode, Andy and I talked about the Ringer's TV character bracket. We're pitting all the great TV characters of the 21st century against each other, March Madness style. So you can check that out on theringer.com. A lot of great stuff there. And you can also vote. Andy and I also talked about the most recent episodes of Devs. And we talked about the new season of Ozark. And in the second half of the show, I spoke with Ozark showrunner and executive producer Chris Mundy about the third season, which I think is absolutely extraordinary. And we'll be talking a lot more about that in the coming weeks. So enjoy today's episode of The Watch. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on Zoom, he's my favorite TV character, it's Andy Greenwald! Would I make your top 64? No. Well, just <laughs> for, on the sheer fact that you're not a television character. Well, I, I, you know, you and I were television characters from our, our long run hosting the Game of Thrones after show. So we're referring to the fact that The Ringer is running the best TV character of the century bracket as we speak. So by the time you hear this, round one will be in the books. And, uh, you know, we didn't have any reality TV characters and we didn't have any after show hosts eligible. So who knows where we would have landed? I know. Tough. I know. You know, I, I I feel like people. I feel like my role as host of Talking Robot, Hacking Robot, I mean, was was a little more beloved mm-hmm. than my role as co-host of After the Thrones. Yeah. Now, well, a lot of people we do we do we are doing this. We're, we're capturing this podcast today on Zoom, so we'll have some video of it. And yeah. um, a couple of people who chimed in after they watched our little. Uh, Better Call Saul breakout, I believe, from mm-hmm. last Thursday's pod. There was a yep. couple of people in the uh, in the mentions saying, "Get Greenwald a tripod for that microphone." Yeah, yeah. and Andy was. Uh, and what, what did you say to the the people asking about that? Well, look, you know, I I believe in transparency, and so what I said was the truth, or at least you know at the time what I believed to be the truth, which sure. is that I left my my microphone stand in the room you're recording in now in our last meeting pre-lockdown in the CR uh, salon yeah a meet a meeting that was was marked by your refusal to use your own tripod which again you know fog of war and all that seemed suspect to me over the last few days that maybe you had actually not had one mm-hmm. and had taken mine so I just let the people know that you know there was some there was some open question as to where my tripod was and whose you were using and then I feel like that's the salient <laughs> portion of the story. So you have a tripod and I have a tripod. How did that happen? You know, I think that we were, do, I think we did as good of a job with the tripods as we could have. We couldn't have seen what was happening or what was going on. You know, as soon as we realized there was a tripod situation, we ordered millions of tripods. <laughs> it's kind and of I like think, devs. Yeah, it was like I think devs. we're doing... I think we're doing a great job with the tripod situation. Uh, I called Alex Rodriguez about the tripod situation. Should I keep this going? We may have too many tripods now. The truth is, 
That's right. That's right. Why aren't you asking these questions of Big Tripod? Um, Greenwald, it's great to see you. It's Monday. Uh, today Never on the show. Never apologize, Chris. This is well, the lesson of this era. Never apologize. <laughs> it's working for you. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Ringer's TV character bracket. We're going to talk a little bit about the fifth episode. Fifth episode of Devs? Yeah. Yeah, the fifth yeah. episode of Devs. And then can, the second half of the show. Can we also talk about, Chris, I know, I know you love it when I just freestyle a little bit. I but can we talk about the third episode of Zero Zero Zero? Oh yeah, yeah. You know, it's, you know, I talked to today for a, a later podcast, Andrea Riseborough. No, you did not. Oh yeah, we I'm just chopped jealous. it up. We we, we, now, we I guess you can't really say chopped it up when you're talking about Zero Zero Zero. You can say it. Um, <laughs> I have a question for you, and again, this is the kind of stuff that back in in the old days maybe wouldn't have flown on the watch pod because, you know, we, we, we kept it pretty straight up and down. But now, you know, <laughs> you're drinking out of a solo cup. I know. All bets are off. I just want you to ballpark it for me. Like, which, what are you, what were you more concerned about your wife walking in on? You opening your PlayStation 4 mm-hmm. or video chatting with Andrea Riseborough? She didn't video chat. Un- unfortunately, Andrea was, was uh, Vox only. Uh, she oh. called in, but she was delightful and was like really, really insightful talking about her character on the show and, and that that show. I would say that over the last couple of days, just as I was kind of like doing some back of the envelope math, 000 is probably Briar Patch excluded. Second fave show of the year. And the the finale is the best episode I've seen of the year. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, since we're talking about it, and we're, we've been doing a piecemeal. People weren't necessarily prepared. I'm loving watching the show. Um, You're my Don Minu. I, 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 Chris and I traded a lot of Don Minu texts <laughs> over the weekend. Especially because Don Minu, for an older fellow, really seems to take to quarantine. Like, he really <laughs> makes the most of it. Yes. He gave yeah. me a lot of ideas about uh, where I should keep my CCTV monitors. He's, but he's living in the Italian breadbasket there. It's lovely. Yeah. It's lovely. The pecorino cheese that he could just reach up out of his hole in the ground to grab. We traded a lot of Don Minutex. I really, really am enjoying the show. And I think that listeners can probably tell that some of the tripod issue was probably on some level connected to the fact that you cautioned me away from watching it. <laughs> I think it had to be. Well, this is the second time that this has happened where I... I feel like I made a pitch to you, but then just kind of assumed you would never follow through with it. The last time this has happened is in a quasi-infamous moment in WatchPod history when you gifted to me on Christmas or right around the holidays. Yeah. Uh, you watched Ozark. I did. For me. And now Ozark's back. And I tried to watch it for you again. Long season pause. Season three or did you go through <laughs> season... You were trying to watch season two. No, I fired up season three for you. Okay. But wait, let, let, let's one show at a time. Yeah, okay. Zero, zero, zero. You know, I didn't think I wanted to know so much about long-haul freighters. <laughs> but yeah. turns out, what a the fascinating, rich subject that is. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, just from the location of the tools necessary to tighten the oil drums, you know what I mean? Or perhaps, if you're feeling frisky, to loosen them up. The detail is what makes this so great. And we've talked many times about 
the thing that seems to make or break shows in this era is just kind of knowing what shape box you're going to put your story into. And I really think to make a show like this, you have to have what appears to be one of the most expensive boxes ever constructed for a television program that may or may not be true. It's a, you know, an inter multi-country international co-production. So I'm sure they made it work <laughs> much like the cocaine trade. It is yeah. a completely opaque international co-production, but it is storytelling on such a rich and epic level right down both in terms of the vistas and the boats and the helicopters but down to the details as well. I was joking about the CCTV cameras and monitors, but that makes the story. I was quasi-joking about the, the the tool wall in the fuel room of the yeah. tanker. In the engine room, that's, yeah. In the engine room, but that's what makes it so rich. And it's so enveloping, and it's such a great watch. I think season th- episode three, which is Andy's referring to uh, an episode that largely takes place on a long-haul shipping like boat, uh, where Dane DeHaan's character is kind of overseeing the shipment of this huge load of cocaine from Mexico and it's on its way to Italy and, uh, you know, trouble happens, trouble ensues. That's where the show really, like, I think jumps, starts to jump up a level. Like, the first two episodes are kind of introducing you to, like, almost a dozen major characters and kind of setting up the world in in a kind of painstaking way. But once they get, like, on the road with that shipment, I feel like that's where it really takes off. Absolutely. I also think it it created a lot of, like, sometimes when I watch shows, I used to, you know, maybe like many people, when they watch anything, they like to think, like, oh, could I, could I have hung with that crowd? Could I have, what would I have done in that moment? I no longer do that for myself because, you know, I, I'm a devoted and humble school teacher, really, is what I do. <laughs> it's my passion. You know, it's, it's what I, it's how I spend my days. So I think about it, about you. And uh-huh. so far, I got to say, Chris, and I'm not just saying this because you're my friend and you didn't steal my tripod. I think you're doing pretty well. So in quarantine three, or just in life? Well, it, yes and yes. But what I mean is, in my ranking of watching zero zero zero, and I'm going to put this to you, okay? I've th- there are three examples, and I don't think this is a spoiler. If you haven't watched the show, it'll probably just make you want to watch it more. Three moments in this show, in episode three of zero zero zero, where I said, "Would Chris Ryan have done the same thing?" <laughs> oh no! And I had yes to all three, but I want to put them to you. Okay. 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 Number one. If you were overseeing your father's cocaine shipment to Italy on a large, large boat with a skeleton crew, yeah, would you spend the majority of the voyage sitting on the edge of the boat listening to a disc man? And if so, <laughs> what exactly are you listening to? Because that's the other thing. I really want someone to step in with memes with, uh, with Chris, Dane DeHaan's character. Again, what a name. Uh, he's listening to music as a Mexican army chopper lands behind him. It's strange that he couldn't hear it. That he was just like, is, oh, look at these guys landing from I mean, the sky while we're in the middle of the ocean. Is it just like a love supreme? Is he just like, is he just vibing out? Would you think he's listening? I mean, you know, what would be really funny is if he was listening to like ocean wave sounds as like a meditation <laughs> app. <laughs> Light helicopter chop. Mexican special forces banter. I mean, I... I, I would pay someone bitcoins to just drop in like young Jeezy like onto that seat just to hear what it sounded like if he was listening to standing ovation. So would you would you 
Chris Ryan, A, be listening to your music, and then B, when the helicopter landed in the middle of the ocean, would you immediately stride right over to the paramilitary guy with the machine gun who gets off the helicopter? I think I would probably be listening to uh, Mogwai. First of all, I wouldn't be on yeah. the boat. I'm not a big boat guy. <laughs> second really? of all, no, I don't like, I get seasick. But second of all, I don't, I don't think that when I see guys repelling out of midair onto my long haul ship of cocaine, right. I don't think that like dialogue is what I'm looking for. To be fair and to be clear for people who haven't watched the show, the ship itself is not made of cocaine. That would not, not be seaworthy. <laughs> okay, point two. Let's just say, Chris, that you are hanging out with some of your oldest friends, like maybe maybe me, uh, maybe maybe Chuck Klosterman, maybe Sean Fennessy's in there. You know, people you feel generally comfortable with, you've socialized, you've raised a couple glasses with, and also your eccentric grandfather who's just emerged from at least a couple of years in self-imposed exile, <laughs> maybe missing a finger, but nobody asked him about it. Yeah. So you're hanging out, you know, maybe the mood's a little weird, but par- probably it's because grandpa's smelling a little ripe. And then he's like, wants to change it up a little bit. And so he suggests that, uh, bring in some company. And that company happens to be a 450 pound hog, which is then <laughs> trussed up, hung from the rafters, stabbed in the throat and bled out. And then grandpa takes a mug be like a chipped, I don't know, what kind of mug are we are we thinking? Like maybe a mug from I got a mug from the coffee exchange up in Providence. Maybe it's maybe it's that style, like something you've had yeah, for a while. Yeah, or just like it's almost like an, an ancient Roman diner mug. Yeah. <laughs> an ancient Roman diner. Oh, so you mean like the true grail from the end of yeah, last crusade? Exactly. It's like choose wisely. F- fills it with still steaming hog blood. Yeah. And just goes to town like it's a soy latte. Just downs you know half of it. I would do it. First of all, you know, I'm interested. I, I like trying new things. And I, love that about I think you. also, like, I was very early on bone marrow, if you remember correctly. <laughs> when, early, bone, not- <laughs> when bone marrow hit Brooklyn, I was an early adopter. You were doing, you were doing large bone luges, right? Like, you, you were lifting it up. Prime Meats used to do, like, they had the bone marrow that you could get with, like, it was like an add-on. And I was just like, this is, I'm your bone marrow guy right here. Add it. That was how, that's how people knew you up on Court Street for a while. Yeah. So, so you would. Bony M, there he goes. Yeah. So once again, I'm right. Like, if someone offered you a mug of hot, and I want to really stress this enough, it is body (laughs) temperature hot, straight from the tap, pig blood. Yeah. Your boy, Chris, quote, I like to try new things, Ryan. Just take a sip. And not one of those like baby sips either. Did I ever tell you the story about how when right before I moved to Los Angeles, me and uh Zach Barron and and Sean Fennessy and John Caramonica, my three of my closest friends, we 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 went down to New Orleans for like kind of a like a a going away vacation thing for me. Did, did and, you meet with the Linwood family while you were there? <laughs> no, I did not. But we did go on a, a sort of road trip outside of, of the city one day and we stopped at a Piggly Wiggly because I was getting cigarettes and I think I was getting Caramonica, Dr. Pepper or something. So I, I wanted to pick up a pack of Camel Lights and inside, the guy in front of me wearing a full sweat, like, like sweatsuit, velour sweatsuit, was buying like a pint of pig's blood. Wait, wait. So you can get it like in a go cup? Like, what do you mean? Like, I think he was just. I think you can do it because they use it. 
down in, in New Orleans, like, it gets like a del- like you remember the Tony Bourdain or, Cajun country or, thing. Like they use or you it could make like, like a- boudin out of it. Yeah, exactly. Like so I think that things. that guy had an end an end point, like another use for it. It wasn't just a beverage. Did you pause? Did you say? Excuse me, sir. It wasn't the weirdest thing I saw in Louisiana that week. <laughs> so I think, uh, I think by that point, I was like, I had already thought I saw Dr. John like three times, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> and so I, I was just like, let's just roll with it. Plus the cigarettes okay. were really inexpensive. Okay. Um, All right. Yeah. Uh, th- last one. Last one. Before okay. we're done with zero, zero, this, zero. this is the zero, zero, zero personality test. I like that we're doing yes. this. So far, you are passing with flying colors. You would do great on the show, like I believed you to. And I, and again, I assume nothing weird or bad happens for the rest of the run. Three episodes in, so this is the nadir of stuff. No, that's it's really heartwarming. It's kind of like Parks and Rec. So you are doing a again. We're not going to spoil it. You're doing some kind of double, if not triple cross, and you need you can't let people know that you let someone escape. Mm-hmm. So you have to make it seem like you were in opposition to them. Is the first thing you do, I want to stress this, <laughs> not the second or third. You don't look around to see if anybody saw you. You don't like weigh your options. With the practiced assurance of Russell Westbrook pulling up from half court as the buzzer's going, you pull a handgun, hold it to your own shoulder, and pull the trigger. I- I don't. I don't trust my aim enough to do that. that that's the thing. So, I just. Feel I honestly like, feel like I would shoot myself in the heart if I did that. Right. And my thing is, even if I had gamed this out, like worst case scenarios for a Tuesday night. Yeah. At the critical moment, I would be like, couldn't I just like <laughs> nick myself? Like, couldn't I just fire a practice round into the sky? I just feel like you know what I did, guys. I really damaged my hearing. So you because can- then. What's incredible, and this is the only criticism I have of this episode, which clearly I enjoyed on a granular level, it's that the character in question shoots himself ostensibly to provide cover and also ostensibly has successfully not killed himself. Gives himself a story to tell. Yeah, right. The people that he's trying to trick arrive and he, through the pain, says the stuff he needs to say to draw people off of the scent. But then his friends say something that I was interested in seeing the follow-up coverage of, of our main guy, which is they don't say, my God, you can't believe this happened. Or like, you almost got, like he, you must've almost gotten him. They, what they say is quickly lift him before he bleeds out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the moment. It's not the first time that a guy's been bleeding on their pavement. No, it's fair. I'm just saying like, that's the moment where I would begin to question my own plan. Yeah. I think you know what Stefano I mean? in 000 has a lot of explaining to do, for sure. So, Chris, is for episode three of 000, you are not 000. You are two for three on could you, could you hang in this world? And I think that's a passing grade. Two for three gets you to Cooperstown, if you extrapolate that over a career. <laughs> that's great. Andy, I just want to talk to you a little bit about a couple of things. So, I want to do the character bracket. And I also want to talk to you. I mean, if you want to talk about devs, we can talk about devs. If you want to talk about Ozark, I'm loving this season of Ozark. The character bracket is, you know, there's a lot of things that happen on any given day that make me feel somewhat old. I did a a podcast appearance, uh, a a Zoom podcast appearance yesterday on the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast, a Sixers podcast we both love. And it was uh, a charity pod for a couple of the um, charities that, Spike and Mike's podcast work with and the chat because there's usually like a chat uh, in Zoom 
was was really savage about my aging. Like they were just like, you look like Adam Silver's dad. <laughs> so I, that made me feel old. But okay. nothing has made me feel older than this TV bracket. And okay. watching some of A, the recency bias, but also like the lack of respect for institutions that we're seeing in this in the voting. So talk so, to me. I mean, the big thing is that Bojack the Horseman I, or Bojack Horseman. Nope. I, is it? <laughs> wow, Bo- Dad. <laughs> Bojack the Horse beat Kendall Roy. Well, that's not recency bias. I mean, the show is called but Bojack the Horseman. But I think it's like more, it's more about like Kendall Roy is a kind of classical anti-hero character. And while Bojack is also an anti-hero, I think his like Daffy, like it's a horse who struggles with depression is kind of a little bit more newfangled. Wouldn't you agree with that? I, I'm going to defend this one. I'd like you to bring up other ones, which I will roast savagely, which uh-huh. I will hang from the rafters like a pig and bleed out into our waiting mugs. This one, though, I will defend primarily because Succession, at its heart, is an uh, ensemble show. So it is possible to love Succession and appreciate Succession while not individually championing Kendall Roy. Okay. Bojack Horseman is the lead character of a show called Bojack Horseman. You can't, it's just, you know, it, it's are you a fan of the system or of the star player? So I, That's it's an interesting just, it's point. An, so let me turn this around on you after you okay. so eloquently just excused away Kendall Roy's being vanquished in the first round. How do you feel by, about... By an animated horse. <laughs> how do you feel about Cartman from South Park beating Fleabag from Fleabag? It's disgusting. Burn the young. <laughs> You don't deserve this the, world. That's not the Young's fault. We, we're fucking responsible for South Park, right? I, I've never taken ownership over that, just like I never took ownership over the tripod issue. Um, <laughs> I mean, look, do I find that abhorrent? Yes. But again, it, it's a numbers game. You know what I mean? And South Park has been a popular show for 20 years. And Fleabag has been a critically adored cult hit for three it's yeah just it, it's it's not fair well i mean you're, you're really steve conracking me here like i thought you would have like hotter takes the big one that was disappointing for me but i think was a matter of seeding was that leslie nope from parks and recreation beat boyd crowder like tagged boyd crowder vaporized him i mean the other thing is i i imagine I'm just, boy, I'm really, I'm a numbers guy. You know what I mean? Like, I, yeah. I, I'm just, I worked next to 538 for a while. And so I really feel like I picked up some of that, that sensibility. That's right. um, and I wonder if there's a correlation between GIF search results uh-huh. in all of this. Whereas, like, like Cartman, like Leslie Nope is, even for people who haven't watched the show or haven't is, watched the is show Is a kind a of go-to reaction meme, Yeah. Yes, and a kind of an iconic character for a certain type of personality and a certain type of internet conversation. And so that kind of makes sense to me. Shout out to me for using the phrase go-to reaction meme and Bojack the Horseman in the same podcast. People don't understand. <laughs> Maybe that, I should get on that long boat to, to, to Italy. <laughs> people don't understand that everyone is using this, if, you know, if, if you're fortunate enough to be home and safe and well, and even a little bit bored, as some people are, like people are using this time in different ways. And I'm doing it raising my children in the same way that, like, you know, the island raised the children of Blue Lagoon. Um, 
you know, like like just natural law and things. Uh-huh. Is that a bad example to use for children? I don't remember. <laughs> no, I honestly don't remember how Baboon panned out. Uh, I think okay. I don't remember. Yeah. Anyway, I definitely on a hike this morning with my children was gaming out the odds of whether what they were walking through was poison ivy. But not with like any sort of like sensibility, not with, you know, there's no Shazam for nature, which would really help me. But I was like, <laughs> it's probably fine. Uh-huh. It's probably fine. Anyway, uh, people don't realize when I was texting you, asking you about your weekend, what you were up to, you were busy becoming a meme lord. That's right. I, I did I, hit you we, with some great memes. <laughs> you hit me with great memes. Like you had them at the ready. You had yeah. Judge Janine. Like that well, was still fresh. I've been now that I'm spending more of my life on Zoom than off of it. I have to right. find different backgrounds. So I, I judge Jeannie from her home broadcast is is a pretty yeah. good uh, reaction meme. And uh, Mayor Pete with the with the self isolation <laughs> beard is pretty good too. I, the Janine thing though was just amazing to me because that was as fresh as pig's blood in episode three of zero zero zero. Like it was still steaming. <laughs> That had just happened when you sent me that. I know. I know. A- anyway, do, 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 who are you really pulling for in this character bracket? Like, uh, like what are the ones that will really upset you once we I get think through I'm, this what first? I'm interested in is that, so one of the things that's been sort of fascinating talking with a lot of different people about the pod I did with Chuck, Music Exists, which is still, we still have episodes coming for the next few weeks and that's on Spotify and where we talked a lot about the relationship music's had to our lives over the course of our lives. I think it made me sort of question a lot of things that I felt were like self-evident about like a, not even like the canon of music, but just sort of like rites of passage that everybody must go through, like whether or not they have a punk phase or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think that you and I, over the course of the years of doing this podcast, just assumed that most people who were engaged in tele- with television also went through a certain television curriculum, more or less. You know, at some point that they would watch a Mad Men or Deadwood or uh, any, I mean, like we, we've gone over these shows, but I think we kind of, you kind of just assume based on what you read on and what you see on Twitter and, and just like the discourse around television that there are these staple shows. So it's been kind of interesting to see something like, for instance, one of the most fascinating results here is that Noho Hank from Barry, a character I love quite a bit, is uh, beating Al Swearingen. Yes, that is an example of recency bias, I think, without question. You know, I, I think you could throw a couple things into it. One, more than anything, recency bias. People really love that character. I think he passes my meme test. He sure does. Um, he is more likable, mm-hmm. I would say, than Al, who is uh, not the most lovable figure. But I also think you are speaking to something really I mean, he's true. more comical. He does pretty... Hank does, is involved in some pretty dark shit, too. But he keeps a winning smile, great he positive does. attitude. Uh, he he'd be great. He'd be great in Zoom meetings. Um, <laughs> people haven't the the dirty secret, which probably isn't dirty nor really a secret of this golden age of television, where we're all you know, you and I are always pining for the monoculture or whatever, talking about the shared canon. People haven't watched everything. Sure, you know everyone has blind spots, but people I think tend to have pretty large ones. You know, y- you've copped to the fact that you haven't watched all the Sopranos. Uh-huh. I was talking to a friend who is the head of a studio in television and was using this time to watch Mad Men. <laughs> so, oh, really? Yeah, I mean, it's just not possible to have watched everything, you know? So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I want to ask you, 
and we can obviously keep tracking this, right? Because one of the when are the, when is this poll going to be done? So End round well, by the time you hear this, round one is over. So we'll go to round two tomorrow, and you can find uh, Andrew wrote a great opening piece for it on the Ringer, and we have like complimentary pieces running all week. Kitty Baker did like a really cool interview with um with uh Catherine Donahue, the actress who plays Lindsay on You're the Worst who unfortunately lost in the first round, but it's a really fun interview between Katie and uh, Cather. Who, Chris, when you heard about this, uh, and obviously you were probably involved in some of the, from the ground up, without thinking about it too hard, without like pouring over your notes or your own DVD library or whatever it is that you have, what was your answer? Who's, your, who's the best character of this century? Like who immediately popped into your head? Um... The first person, I mean, my number one character was Swearingen. So my personal top, I'll give my top 10. How about that? Wow. I mean, I'm not prepared to join you there, but that's, that's cool. Here, here's who I voted for. Al Swearingen, lost. Mm-hmm. Fleabag, lost. Russ Cole is winning his first yeah. round matchup. Stringer Bell, not nominated. Uh, Charlie Kelly. Stringer, from Bell, Stringer Bell didn't make the 64? No, it's like it's Omar is in the 64. Was there a one character per show cap? No, it was three. Okay. So Ron Swanson and Leslie Nope from from Parks both made it. Um, but Stringer Bell, Charlie Kelly from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Tywin Lannister from Game of Thrones, Gus Fring from Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad, Paperboy from Atlanta, Tim Riggins from Friday Night Lights, and Larry David from Curb Your Enthusiasm. That was my top 10. S- strong list, friend. Thank you, brother. Uh, I had... As soon as I heard the question that you guys were doing it, it for me, it was Ron Swanson. Really? Uh, yeah. The How first come? person I thought of. I, I just, I st- and maybe maybe this is also because I'm thinking about Nick Offerman and how great he is on devs, how quite mm-hmm. different he is on devs. But there is something that is so titanic to me about that character, just in terms of getting it all right. Like, the most specific vision for personality, for point of view, for comedy, for how to be used in a scene and what he could be played off of and what could be played against him, the way that they, the way that the character was met with the perfect actor for it. And just the, it, there's just something pure, almost, almost as pure to me as like a Homer Simpson character, the way yeah. that, that character was conceived of and and deployed for maximum comic effect. I just think it's stunning. And then I would probably go into your stringers and Omar's and Paperboy's of the world, but it's, but without thinking too much about it or even thinking about shows that I loved or wouldn't put in my, t- like, I didn't think my brain didn't go straight to Don Draper because as soon as I think about Don Draper, I think about, Oh, well, Roger Sterling or Stan Rizzo or like, or, or, or Peggy Olson would be in my top two. Yeah. I would no, say. uh, you know, my, my bottom 10 reflected that it was like, uh, Tracy Jordan, Boyd Crowder, Max Jeez. from happy endings, uh, Diane Lockhart from the good wife, good fight, Jonah Ryan from Veep. Molly Silverson from Fargo, Roger Sterling from Mad Men, Kim Wexler from Better Call Saul, and then uh, I had a little fun in the last two with Baby Yoda and Barb from Stranger Things. God, what a what a rich century for television <laughs> characters. Anyway, um, do you want to talk devs for a minute? Sure. Yeah, I thought you know the Kenton monologue from the beginning of episode five. Fantasy uh, was tweeting about this. Um, was a real like signature moment for the show. I remain a dedicated reader of the devs Reddit boards. Oh yeah, um, what's going in on? In an there? attempt, well, I the, the devs Reddit boards, man. Like, I got I got to admit, maybe I just I'm a little rusty, but like, 
it's kind of going over my head a little bit, like in terms of some of the stuff, like the theories that they're talking about. I grasp what what's at stake and I grasp loosely what I think that they're trying to do on the show. But some of the the theories, I am the guy who responds to the guy who starts the the Reddit thread and he writes, there's actually literally one about the dead mouse scene in episode yeah. five and a guy writes like a 750 word like mini essay about it and then the first comment is i can fuck with this <laughs> and that's me i'm just the guy who's just like huh that's the discourse I can fuck with this yeah i mean it's like what a haunting episode i think i find myself a little bit grabbing on to characters like kenton who feel a little bit more of our world but uh, I imagine that that everybody is approaching this show in a different way, and it still remains this sort of totem of mystery on on TV right now. What a what a miracle that it's even on. Yeah, I think that again, my main takeaway is that it, the show is beautiful and thought provoking and haunting and unlike anything else. I, not just the Kenton speech, but thinking about how truly chilling it was and disquieting and relevant at this particular moment in our time. Um, not so much about what he says about Chinese dominance, but about American, uh, what's the opposite of dominance? Well, just <laughs> the, the idea of the cascading at, at effect. The moment. You know, it's like, right. what, how do you respond to cascading? You know? Exactly. And and then the way that, shot, that the scene was so beautifully framed and shot, it's just, it's just stunning to look at. This was a show, an episode where I thought where the show's, the show is extremely cerebral. And I think that's obviously where Alex Garland does a lot of his best work. So again, using purely cerebral way of looking at it, this was also a very smart storytelling package yeah. to give us story moving in a couple different directions at once and filling in some gaps. The downside of of that cerebral storytelling is that when the show focuses on the emotional moments, unless you get something like playing unspeakable horror and tragedy off of Nick Offerman's incredibly evocative and performative and, you know, emotional face, it leaves me chilly. Um, so like Lily and Sergey meeting cute and saying they loved each other did not have the same effect on me that it had on Alison Pill watching it on her, uh, you know, tra- uh, past transmitter. Sure. I mean, I wonder whether or not that's sort of the point is that the sort of emotional beats that we're used to being to hanging our coat on and certain shows are now we're, we're, we're being shown the, the hollowness of those moments because right. of their malleability and the space time quantum physics world that we're playing with. Right. I mean, that's an aspect of it. She's watching it on TV too. And it's having an effect on her, which is it's in itself kind of interesting. The thing that of course, I'm sure I'm not alone that that really stayed with me after the episode was just the beautiful way that Alex Garland filmed, told the story of a multiverse, mm-hmm. right? Where, where the, you know, one second of difference, uh, Forrest's family returns home safely and they're happening almost overlaid on top of each other. And again, that is an extremely, provocative thought particularly at this moment in time that you know if one thing went slightly in a different direction where would it have left us and how tantalizingly close that alternative present can feel so do you feel like it's necessary to have an understanding of what Forrest and Katie are trying to do to fully like I mean to what extent do you feel compelled to understand this show versus let this show wash over you I feel zero need to understand it more. Do you understand I, I think, it? You know, it, it's funny. I, I would have said yes. Is there yes. a version of you that understands it? 
(laughs) Definitely. It's interesting that you say it like that. And I I think that prior to you asking the question that way, I would have said yes to the degree that I need to. As you phrased it, do I know what Forrest and Katie are up to? I realize I don't know their end game for projection or revision. You know, is their end game to bring, to jump train tracks, tram lines, as he says, into a different one where something happened differently? I I don't really know. Was his goal Mm -hmm. to just watch what would have happened to Amaya? Could he watch her future? Could he watch her past? Or how is he going to get her? I don't actually know, I realize, as you asked me that question. But I, I don't feel any need to. I actually was pleasantly surprised to realize this was the fifth episode because it's not a chore in any way to watch it and to watch it week after week. It did make me wonder, and I'm going to throw this at you, unpressed. (laughs) Is this this the devs personality quiz? No, but I was wondering, obviously, I, I can't be the only one who, when thinking about the multiverse and the tram lines going in different directions, you know, if like, there's a little bit less... Russian disinfo in 2016, how things would have shaken out. And I, and I was thinking, because I've also had my, I've been on my walks and runs outside of my own self-quarantine here, like doing a lot of music on shuffle. And I was thinking about if things had gone differently in the last presidential election, mm-hmm. I was thinking of whose careers, and this sounds a little glib, so I hope you'll allow it because I'm just kind of riffing here. I was th- I could think of two people who I feel like their careers were in some ways derailed. Not that they're in not that they can't bounce back, not that they're not still successful, but that they were primed for a run that the world and the world's appetite for what they were peddling changed drastically. Okay. After the election. One was our old friend from New York James Fallon. <laughs> not uh-huh. really our friend. But I, I don't think, I mean, he's yeah. still on TV every night and, you know, NBC is very happy with his work and that's great. Seems like a nice guy. But, you know, he was like dominating in the late night wars and yes. Tonight Show is doing great and everybody loved And then it playing. kind of paved the way for Colbert and 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 more polemical late yeah. night hosts. He just wasn't take- really made for this moment, which is, yeah. I don't even mean as a ding against him. I think he would probably admit the same thing. The other one was someone who came on my earbuds the other day uh, when I was running which was Chance the Rapper. <laughs> Do you have any okay. thoughts on this? Uh, you know, I've, I think, so you you think that Chance the Rapper's career was derailed by the election of Trump? Yes. Wow, you really are spending a lot of time by yourself. <laughs> yes. No, actually, I've not been by myself in three weeks. <laughs> but sometimes, you know that part in the first Star Wars where C-3PO is like, if you won't be needing me, sir, I'll power down for a while. <laughs> Sometimes I do that. Yeah. yeah <laughs> with yeah. my family. Yeah, because I was listening to uh, Coloring Book, which is just still a phenomenal album. And he's just like tap dancing over all these styles. And he's such a consummate showman. And he's kind of like Fallon, you know, and he's telling his truth. And his truth it can be fun and it can be sometimes kind of dorky and it's whatever. And 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 then something I just I, I literally I was listening. I'll just I'll just give you the my full story here. I was I was running up a hill, shouts to Kate Bush, and uh, <laughs> and uh, Smoke Break came on from Coloring Book. It was him and Future. It's such a, it's a great track. I was loving it. And then as I was listening to it, the image of the two forests from Devs Five, one walking towards his family and one marching off in impossible grief, came into my mind. So I don't know whether that speaks more about the way my brain is right now with Chance the Rapper, or specifically the way Devs is playing with my mind. 
because it just felt like two roads diverged. I just feel like what chances more of a canary in the coal mine of like what happens when you almost go too far outside of traditional like promotion and distribution models just right now. I'm not saying that ethically or whether or not he's like a visionary, but it just felt like after a certain point, like I wasn't really sure, like, is this a Chance the Rapper mixtape? Is this a Chance the Rapper album? Is this an album that he made with his backing band that is not like officially a record of yeah. his? And it was, it's almost like, I mean, that happens with artists, like where they have that moment. You, you and I were huge Guided by Voices fans. They were so prolific. They've always been prolific. But in the window that we love them, they're, uh, their prolific nature was part of the appeal and then it became overwhelming and we couldn't understand like where, which way was up. Now Chance isn't that prolific, but I feel like Chance was like, he kind of almost walled himself off a little bit in that way where he was like, I've, I've kind of like set up my career so that it it is entirely self-sustaining, but it it felt like maybe he took a step back from being part of something larger. Does that make sense? I I hear you and I, Disagree. With I also it. wasn't prepared to talk about Chance the Rapper's no. like, yeah. But you're so good at podcasting, Chris. This is Thanks. great. Can, this is the version point of the podcast where you are just willingly taking the gun and pointing it at what you hope is not your heart <laughs> and pulling the trigger. And it's working out great. I, I think that his celebrity is partly because of his, you know, his ability to just not be limited to one thing. And so he could still sell out a show or host Saturday Night Live and the goodwill is all still there in his own personality and persona. But there is a thing with artists where they're like, they're holding the conch and they've got it or they're holding the third rail, right? Yeah, you have the belt. Yeah. And sometimes you, it's taken from you and sometimes you can get it back and sometimes you, whatever. And to go from the highs of that to the record he put out last year, which no one wants to talk about because everyone likes him, was really bad. I just found it really interesting. And, and, and maybe we could revisit this idea. In it. it doesn't have to be, honestly, like going straight to the presidential election to Chance the Rapper's dud album. It's a stretch. Right. I have only been with people under the age of six, six and under today. So forgive me. But yeah. I do think the devs idea of the two roads diverging in a moment and then what happens in those moments is a pretty rich construct for us to talk about culturally. So maybe I'm as- pretty sure. I mean, I don't know what devs is about. It could be about Chance the Rapper. It could be. Right. (laughs) I want to get to our interview or my interview with Chris Mundy, the executive producer of Ozark to talk a little bit about season three. It's a spoiler. I think it's a, it's a, I would call it a spoiler free interview. At least if you haven't gotten a chance to finish season three, don't worry about it. We mentioned some stuff that happens, but it certainly isn't, uh, life-changing in terms of like how you understand the show. So I, I definitely recommend that interview. And Chris was really cool to give us his time today. I would say that um, Ozark season three, you know, it definitely does not start in like a chill way. (laughs) That's my review. But I thought that you were looking for unchill shit because that's like why you were like zero, zero, zero is actually like fine for me. You know, I didn't give it a fair shake because let me just paint the picture for you of, of, of my life in romper room quarantine, which is that because I, I still have work to do. I got a little furloughed time yesterday mm-hmm. sunday to come here i'm in my wife's office to like get a little work done and i also thought maybe i would make my friend happy and 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 check out ozark during that time sure. and so the sunshine outside 
a pandemic raging and I'm like on, like I can hear my children like on scooters, like just outside of, so you know what I mean? I was like, this is a very tenuous moment. Yes. So in this moment, watching someone, uh, uh, again, hogtie, living people to each other and then putting an explosive device next to their face while we hear them whisper, no quiero morir, which for the non-Spanish speakers among us means I don't want to die. Uh-huh. It was a mismatch. That's all I'm saying. It was just a classic mood and time mismatch. I can only ask so much of you, so it's okay. It's okay. It, it's, it was, it, I am in no way commenting on the quality of the show. And No, I, I actually think that season three in some ways might be the best season. What it reminded me of was the, the thing that I really, really loved about Ozark season one and the, all the episodes I've seen is the commitment to the bit. What I mm-hmm. mean is the show is so wholeheartedly what it is and mm-hmm. it never shies from the more insane choice, you know, in a way yeah. that is... Chris talked about that. He talked about how, because I asked him a lot about, you know, one of the things that really drew me to the show in the first place was how Ozark never seemed to leave stuff for later. Right. Like, oh, yeah, we can try exactly. we can try that some other year. Like they 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 seem to have cleared the whiteboard in the first episode. And every, everything every about the show, the reason the show has such a distinctive energy is that they keep thinking of new ways to sort of challenge these characters. And I think that the way in which the specifically the Wendy character played by Laura Linney evolves over the course of this season uh is pretty pretty stunning. People are gonna be talking about it for a while. Awesome. Can I just say uh, before we get into that, um, this is Monday, eighth episode of Briar Patches on tonight. I'd love to talk about it with you guys a little bit on Thursday. This one and next week's are, I mean, one is supposed to love all one's children equally. These are probably my favorite. Awesome. Um, Jessica Lowry did a beautiful job directing it. It has the single, the moment that makes me laugh harder than any other moment in the season, thanks to Jay Ferguson. I just really wanted a dance party on the show, and we got one. And uh, Alan Cummings by the Punch Bowl. So I, I think people are going to dig it. This is one of our most successful episodes. And now that we got Zoom up and running, hopefully we can do we can get some Briar Patch Thursday guests back. I would love to. I, I can tell you for a fact that the crew and cast are available. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I mean, I hope people are following Brian Garrity on Instagram because he's just doing uh, home workout videos. Is he? Yeah, he's just like dry lifting water things, uh, jugs of water. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody's doing great. Um, I'm excited to hear this interview with Chris Mundy. I'm excited for all of you and grateful to all of you for listening to us during this time. Yeah. Everybody be well. Uh, let easy. us know how, how you do with the 000 personality test. Yeah, because I want to keep this going because I, I I have a feeling there are going to be some more uh, some more corkers to put to you let's next ho- week. Let's hope not, though, for, for my sake. I hope that as this show goes on, you find less and less in common with my behavior. I watch the show and I'm like, that's Chris. They just, they, it's my guy. It was great to talk to you, man. Enjoy your pig's blood. Bye, buddy. I want to thank Chris Mundy so much for joining me today on The Watch. Chris, obviously, is the uh, executive producer behind Ozark and has been working on this show since its inception. Chris, thanks so much for joining The Watch today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. So I want to get a little bit of uh, biographical business out of the way first, because your trajectory, your career trajectory is very near and dear to the Watch Podcast's hearts because Andy and I, uh, the person I usually do the podcast with, we both come from music journalism backgrounds. 
And I know that you you kind of got your start writing these incredible in-depth features for Stone back in like the sort of the mid-90s. And I remember reading some of these as I was going back today. Um, how did you make the transition from journalism to TV writing in the first place? I almost, like I, by a sort of a happy accident, my wife was a... Uh, was also a magazine writer and decided to go to, it was right as we were getting married and decided to go to law school. And she, uh, and we were living in New York and I was writing for Rolling Stone and I'd been there for 10 years and with no intention to ever leave the city or the magazine. And uh, she ended up going to law school at the, uh, on the West Coast. She went to Stanford and we, we were just supposed to zip up to Palo Alto and then zip back to New York. And I was still writing for the magazine, but I was sort of displaced and she was like, well, you know, you'd like to do some of this other kind of writing. And I was a fiction writing major in college. And she's like, well, we're in California. Why don't you just start, start writing for TV? And I was like, but we're in Northern California and I've never done it before. <laughs> and I just kind of did it on a whim and mailed something off and uh, that I wrote kind of quickly and got my first job. And next thing you know, we haven't gone back to New York. It's been very strange. And I suddenly like accidentally have a whole second career. So that first job was, was, was that Chicago Hope? It was the final season of Chicago Hope. Yeah, with a guy named Henry Brimmel, who was the showrunner, who was an amazing, amazing guy. Oh, sure. yeah, he worked on Homicide, right? He did. He ran Homicide, and he'd been an uh, instructor at the Iowa Writers Workshop and a novelist and a short story writer. And he was and he'd started out on, in TV sort of accidentally and at about 40 on Northern Exposure. So he was a really, really great first person to kind of guide me into like what the job could be. And did you find that, you know, coming from a journalism background, because I wonder whether going back to like the, you know, the 1930s with people like Ben Hecht and, and there's this tradition of journalists becoming screenwriters, but I wonder whether there's just, there's good habits built up. It, I very rarely do people say journalists have good habits, but <laughs> you know, you're, you're used to working collaboratively. You have to work with both with sources, but also with limited resources and with editors, and you're you're used to deadlines. Did you find that the transition wasn't entirely foreign? It was weirdly equatable for, for tons of the reasons you just said. Yeah, like you know how to hit a deadline. You go out if you're doing a profile of someone. You've got scenes that you're watching. You've got to figure out what scenes you're going to use. You're, you want to show. You don't want to tell. You're trying to. You know, you're not just relaying a series of information. You're trying to get some deeper meaning behind it, and sort of trying to figure out what it's actually about, besides just the things that happened. So, and and so, and you write in these kind of like series of scenes that that illustrate a, a person. Certainly, the kind of journalism I was doing, which was more like you know, I'd be on the road with a band for a week. You know, so um, so it was weirdly, it, it was a weirdly transferable skill. Thank God. Yeah, I just, I really, I was going back and paging through some of the older profiles and, and you know, the Elliot Smith piece that you wrote in, I think it was 90, must have been, I can't remember. Eight or so. 90, I think it was, yeah. Yeah, and, it was and right it, it, yeah. And it's just, you know, the opening scene is you guys are just at a bar probably in, in Williamsburg or somewhere and you're describing the kind of intersection of these different neighborhoods and the bar that the Elliot Smith has sort of cornered himself away in. And it's just so evocative. Like right there, you can kind of feel like that, that almost works as like interior Brooklyn bar. That's exactly right. And you're, you know, using that piece as an example, I spent three or four days with them. So then you're like filing through your brain being, okay, what, what thing that we did is, is best sorts of sort of sets the scene you know what I mean? It's, it's a weirdly similar skill, you know? Um, 
So, and, and I love, I loved that job. I, I, and, and I love this job. So, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you've worked on, since, since writing for that final season of Chicago Hope, you've worked on all these different shows. You worked on network procedurals. You kind of, you worked on Low Winter Sun and, and Hell on Wheels at a time when I think we were kind of referring to it as prestige TV. And now we're kind of in this peak TV streaming era with Ozark. To your experience, how much has the day-to-day changed for you? I guess, obviously, you have different roles on different shows. But have you noticed any like functional changes on the day-to-day basis as the industry itself has changed so much? Not, not really. I mean, the biggest change for a lot of people, certainly for me, that did network TV at some point is just, you know, I was on Criminal Minds, and there was one season we did 26. You know, we wow. were almost always doing 22 or 24. So, um, and... And we'd start up, all the writers would start together on like June 1st, and you'd be filming by mid-July. And so on a show like Ozark, we're only doing 10, and we won't start shooting until about four months after we've all been together. You just said you have time to try to really build a layered story that you're, that it's just harder to do in network just because of the sheer demand of it. So that's the gigantic difference. But in terms of besides that, the... Um, the way a room works, the way a set works. No, it's it's all kind of the same. I mean, I love being on something like Netflix where you're not writing to any commercial breaks. Sure. You know, that's so much more liberating than say, you know, whatever, swearing or violence or nudity or whatever. You can say like, oh yeah, you have freedom in that way. But like, but really not writing to sort of artificial stoppages and allowing the story to just be, that's the biggie. That's That's the thing that's really great. In the absence of uh, having commercial breaks and the absence of knowing you have to fill out 20... The idea of writing 26 hours of television is almost inconceivable to me now uh, in the course of just one season. But internally in the Ozark writer's room, what are some rules that you would feel comfortable sharing that you know, that you guys have introduced to the specific world of the show itself? And I'm always really fascinated to talk with writers about oh, well, we have these set of rules like of what an episode of our show can and can't do or should and shouldn't do. Do you have anything like that? No, it, it's funny. We've, we've actually, we have a stated rule that's the opposite. Like anytime we feel like it's something that um, we would never want to do something just because it's, it's what we do. And so, you know, season one, we had a flashback episode that was 10 years before that was really important to our mythology in our mind. And we did it all, we did it out of chronological order. You know, we, we've always tried to, we'll do scenes with characters you've never even seen before on their own, which, you know, some might say isn't the wisest thing to do, but you know, for us, if it works, it works. We, mm-hmm. we really want to make sure we don't have a mold and, you know, we've had, a little bit of magical realism and, you know, Russ, uh, you know, Wyatt's uncle showed up two different times sure. a, as a dead person in season two. Um, and just cause we loved those scenes and we wanted to, to, to be able to do them. And, uh, and we spent a lot of time with Mark Menchaca who plays Russ and having him play guitar. And we were like, Oh, and, and, and Russ could play guitar in the scene too. <laughs> cause Menchaca is amazing. So, you know, but we, we really want to make sure there's no, uh, that we we don't get into a pattern of saying like, oh no, we can't do that. Would we be surprised the average viewer to know how much, not necessarily obviously biographical information, but mannerisms or 
you know, hobbies or just even just like abilities like playing guitar would would seep into a show, be it Ozark or any other? Oh, totally. Absolutely. We found out too late that the, uh, that Trevor Long, who plays uh, Cade, actually tap dances. And if we'd known that, we would have liked <laughs> Cade would have tap danced. But, um, but yeah, that's the really great thing about TV is, is you all live together and like make this thing as you go. So like pieces of the real life person can seep into the character a little bit, or you just, you get to know those, those things better. And, um, you know, especially over time, that's the amazing thing about, you know, doing a season three and hopefully doing a season four, you know, just like you, it just, it continues to grow and your knowledge of each other grows. Yeah. And I, I would imagine that even so like, I wonder if there are just like little things like say like costume choices that are inevitably influenced by, because there's something very, I, I find it very fascinating specifically that Marty's uniform for the most part has like not deviated at all. Jason's been in pretty much one pair of pants for three years. Yeah, that's right. And I think there could probably actually be a supercut at this point of him <laughs> buttoning his shirts up to the second to last button. Yeah. But I do feel like Wendy's out like costuming has changed a little bit over the three seasons as she's become more and more comfortable, I guess is the only word I can think of, but it, that as she finds her surroundings more natural. Uh, I think that's a really good observation. Yeah. Uh, and is she kind of like, you know, we, we, we think of Wendy as kind of like weirdly coming back to herself in the Ozarks. You know, she came from Boone, North Carolina. She sort of like cleaned up in Chicago, but now this is like a perfect melding of those two. And the wardrobe has kind of reflected that. Our, our wardrobe department's amazing. And so, um, you know, this is stuff they think about and they talk about and they talk about with me. They talk about with Jason and Laura and Julia and everyone. And um, there's a lot of thinking that goes into that and, and, and those kind of evolutions. So obviously I want to talk a bit about season three, but I also want to like, just in case, because it just came out on uh, late last week for our listeners to still be able to get stuff out of this interview if they haven't seen the season yet or the whole season yet. One of the things that really immediately grabbed my attention when Ozark debuted those several years ago was this idea of um, narrative compression that essentially like in the first episode of Ozark as a series, you could have squeezed out two seasons, <laughs> you know, and, and that was, I think that it, you kind of just immediately realize that there are no observable speed limits in this show. Yeah. What, how, as, as a writer, as, as somebody who's thinking both about the short term and the long term creatively about the show, how do you know when to tap the brakes, if ever, on this show? Uh, it's a really good question. We argue about it in the room a lot. And people will always be like, like, oh, I think this is more than one episode here. And I'll be like, oh, it kind of feels like it's one episode. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think you know when to tap the brakes if it's just incident. We don't mm -hmm. want things just to happen to happen. But if you can be combining character with action, you know, or event, then we're okay. Then that's in our sweet spot. Or if that action really exists to drive to the reaction around it immediately afterwards, whether or not it's a Marty Wendy conversation or Ruth and Wyatt going through something or then it's worthwhile, you know? Um, so I think a little, pretty quickly we found that rhythm and, and we don't play a lot of mystery on this show. You know, a lot of. No, I know exactly what you mean by that. The best example is you could have spent a year with the kids not knowing that the, their parents, what their parents were doing. But in 
episode two, Wendy just says, your dad's laundering money for a Mexican drug cartel. Right. We, 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 we want to deal with what the ramifications of the things are, not play the, like what someone doesn't know. Yeah, there's not a lot of when will X find out something that the viewer already knows, which is, it's funny, Andy and I have been talking about that over the course of this year with a couple of different shows about, we were actually talking about it with Outsider. I don't know if you got a chance to watch, I'm I'm assuming you you watched Outsider just because of your relationship. But we were talking about how interesting it was that at various points in Outsider, the viewer knows more than Holly, the Cynthia Revo character, and how the disorienting that can be at times. But Ozark is kind of the the reverse of that, where I feel like the characters are really the tip of the spear. We're never ahead of them, particularly. Yeah, no, it's very, it's very much on purpose. It's very much just driving at like everything is out there and open. So now, what are the human emotions reactions to that knowledge? Yeah, I was looking back at an interview you did, uh, I believe in Variety, where it was an interview you did with Peter Gold. And and you said something really fascinating where you said, if you're making a decision based on, oh, this is a franchise of the TV show, it's probably going to be a bad decision. But you're thinking like a business person then. You're not thinking like a writer. When you guys were making season one, was there a part of you that thought maybe that that would be the only season of Ozark? And how did it change once you realized, no, this is something... People are pretty invested in it and it could be, it needs to be sustainable. You know what? I actually, we just always thought there was going to, it was going to keep going. I, yeah. I think you kind of have to. I mean, you know, even if you're living in denial and, uh, but um, from the beginning, I I just, I just felt like, you know, obviously Jason's so good, both as an actor and a director. I remember saying when, when, when we found out Laura was going to do the show, that she'd agreed to play Wendy. Like we came into the writer's room and I actually said to the writers like, oh my God, we got Laura Linney. Like, it's not okay for us to suck. Like, <laughs> you know? um, and I I didn't know Julia's work before this, but immediately in, in seeing her, you knew how good she was. So like, we just sort of felt like we needed to operate on the theory that we were going to get to keep going and we were going to be lucky enough to keep, keep doing it. And um, sure. So that kind of stuff luckily never came into our brains. It was always just like, of course, we're going forward. Who's the character who's surprised you the most over the last three seasons? I guess in terms of, of if, if I had asked you, you know, the third week of season one writing, you know, where do you think Wyatt's going to be in a couple of seasons? Who, who do you think was the person who you've been most surprised by their arc? It's, you know, it's it's funny. It's not a, um, it's not a surprising answer, but I, I would say Wendy, just because, <laughs> I mean, honestly... In season one, it I mean, they've all evolved. Like we, we talk about the fact that the first time you see Ruth in season one, she's a maid at this little mo- crappy motel. Yeah. And when the first time you see her in season three, she's running a casino with Marty. So everyone's had an evolution. But, you know, Wendy's character was this kind of like woman from Naperville who was kind of, you know, probably on a few committees. And even when they first moved to the, the Ozarks, it was kind of, well, maybe I'll get a real estate license. Sure. And, and so we've just really tried to chart that and step her, her, her evolution out in ways that felt real. And, um, but um, the extent to which she sort of has come into her own, Laura said something really interesting in, uh, early on in season one that she feels like the interesting thing about the show is none of these characters know themselves very well. Sure. Um, but 
Wendy's self-knowledge has come on a little stronger than some some of the others. Cause it's like I said, it's just kind of this perfect combination of Boone, North Carolina and Chicago in this other location. And so so I wouldn't have been able to say season one that that, that she was gonna end up where she is. Like, whereas Ruth instantly in the room, Ruth was all our favorite character, this like 19-year-old girl in this world of sort of overly masculine men, but yet she was the most powerful and almost like this feral creature. I mean, we just, we loved that character and we knew, and especially once we were so lucky to have Julia be so, so good, we knew we were going to take her places. We didn't know where for sure, but we knew like, you know, if we were smart, we'd take her places. So the Wendy evolution, sorry, I'm a long answer, but- uh, No, it's fascinating. it's, it's, It's been really fun to have the Wendy thing just play out in kind of real time and yet look where we are now. Do you need Jason and other characters or other actors on the show to necessarily agree with Laura's view of that? Or is that more of just a a sort of her way of looking at it? Because I think one of my favorite things about the show is regardless of how much the characters know about themselves, what the show is really about is we don't know anything about ourselves until we're in situations like this. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I know. I, I actually think that, you know, season three was really built on this um, of differing points of view. And I would hope that half our people think one person's right and the other half think the other person's right. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Because like coming out of season one, we had a real kind of physical cliffhanger because Dell had been killed and what the hell was going to happen. And and really coming out of season two, it was very much an emotional cliffhanger of, oh my God, wait, who am I married to? And and we built the season on that emotional cliffhanger. Uh, or we tried to, you know what I mean? So, to whatever success we had. Yeah. So, and it's not an interesting story if they're not each right in a certain way. Oh, that's really interesting. So how do you balance that? Do you do you do you have like a sort of checks and balances when you're writing about like making sure that if even if somebody is losing an argument that their point is coming across in some ways? I think so. I think so. Or at least if they're making a bad decision, you understand why they're making a bad decision because you know that character well enough. You know, right. I mean, these guys make a whole lot of bad decisions all the time, but um at the same time because we've now spent 30 hours with them, I think we understand them well enough to at least, hopefully, if we've done our job pretty well, we at least understand where the decision came from, you know? Thematically, you know, I, I, I know that it sounded like when, um, when, when, when David Simon would sort of go into a new season of The Wire, he would always sort of think about like a big theme that would, whether it was the impossibility of progress or whatever. I mean, I guess that's the theme of the entire series. But, you know, he would kind of have these thesis statements at the beginning of seasons that the the season would kind of revolve around. Do you guys have a a thematic North Star for each season? Do you think about this story in discrete chapters? We have have one for the season and we put it up on the board in big old letters in in the same way of like, you know, like a political campaign. I'll put their thing up there. Yeah. And then within each episode, we try to have that in each individual episode as well. Huh? Can you share what the theme, what you guys wrote down for the third season? Um, there, uh, the, the last year it just said um, safety is equals expansion, safety equals a status quo, huh. and um, and then we had another. We, I'm trying to remember the exact wording about marriage and uh, basically about equating 
marriage and 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 capitalism and can it work if there's a winner and a loser so um <laughs> and, and but those like they stayed on those first other ones stayed on the board in my terrible handwriting um for the whole year for the whole year oh that's it's so fascinating because like i mean I, the thing i've been loving about season three is the way in which you know whether it's um whether you know it's an idea of family, whether it's like by vows or by blood or out of a sense of loyalty, how vulnerable those connections are when you're trying to balance them with your your individualism, basically. Yeah, no, I, I, we, and that's something we talked a lot about in season two as well. It's like one of the things that was uh, big on our board in the same in the same way for season uh, two was intimacy equals danger, and oh, wow. and. And what do you do when the people close to you are pose the biggest threat to you just by the fact that they know what they know? What do you, what do you do when you're afraid that your children might do something stupid because children do stupid things, but it gets you killed? You right. know, um, there's a lot of really good stuff to play with in in our world. You know, did you feel like uh, there was anything in this season? I guess maybe from the earlier part of the season, just because in case folks haven't had a chance to finish it yet, but what was your favorite moment from the earlier part of season three to see come to life? It's a good question. There's always, there's a, I mean, there's, there's different things. Like there was, there's a conversation on the lawn between Jason and Laura in episode one that really lays out everything we're talking about. That was really fun because they're both so good in it. And it really kind of like staked out our season for us in a way that, felt organic and not just like a writer with a bunch of exposition just cuz they're so good. The fact that we actually had Ario Speedwagon on that boat. <laughs> yeah. You know, beware beware of like saying something in a writer's room cuz next thing you know we're like, "Wait, is this really happening? Are they actually going to do it?" Like, "Wait." So that was uh I still can't quite believe that that happened. <laughs> One of my favorite throwaway lines of the season is definitely when the REO Speedwagon tour manager is like, so you want us to launder money? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> As if that's not the first time REO Speedwagon had been asked to do that. I know, I know. They were really nice too because at first they were like, their their first reaction was like, oh no, we don't want to say that we're laundering through us. And then they came back and you were like, you know what? We're like, we're down for all of it. And I was like, yeah. God bless you guys. Yeah, it was, it was, it was great. <laughs> Yeah, and I also I I just ha- I I wanted to ask you about the um the the just the absolute blowout couples therapy scene with Marty Wendy and and maybe the MVP of the season Sue. Oh my uh, God, Sue! Yeah, uh, where did you find Sue? Sue, like it's this woman Mary Louise Burke who's been like um, a Broadway staple forever. So um, our casting director Alexa Fogel is just. Oh, Alexa's been on our show before. She's she's a legend. She's yeah, the she's amazing. Yeah, I mean, she cast The Wire. Speaking yeah. of The Wire, and uh, but so Alexa, you know, brought her. Her and a bunch of there were like so many good Sue choices, but she's so funny. But yeah, that scene, that's the other scene I probably would have mentioned as the the thing getting to see come to life because uh, that that fight was always a big tentpole in our season. We knew we were going to do that, and and we knew it was. Everything we'd built from the end of season two, we didn't want to have that fight right away. We wanted it to like simmer underneath the tension and come out mid-season. It's literally the start of episode six. So it's the first scene in the second half of the season. Yeah, that was like watching like an NBA All-Star game or something where guys, people are just throwing each other alley-oops. Chris, thank you so much for joining The Watch today. I'll let you go. And I really appreciate you taking some time out to talk to us. 